Hey there, this is Brian Zond. We'll get to the sermon in a moment, but I want to talk for just a second about the water to wine gathering that's coming up June 11, 12, 13 here in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, This is a gathering for people who, we could say it this way, they sense the falseness prevailing in Americanized Christianity and they're looking for something better. We call it water to wine because that's kind of the journey for a lot of people. You move beyond a watered-down, weak Christian faith and you begin to discover something more rich, more robust, more intoxicating, the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. And so I've invited a lot of my close friends to come and be presenters. It's going to be fantastic. And you can register now at watertowinegathering.com. Don't go to watertowine.com. That'll just get you wine. You got to go to watertowinegathering.com. It has all the information, what the workshops are and who's presenting and how you can register. But go ahead and do that because we would love to spend a few days with you right here in St. Joseph, Missouri for Water to Wine Gathering 2020. And here in the Lenten season, uh, we're continuing our series this morning entitled The Lenten Journey. And Jesus often taught his disciples as they were on the road together, right? They would be on a journey together and Jesus would be teaching them about his way, about the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I would like to invite us to open our hearts and minds to receive, to learn, and to grow this morning as we journey with Jesus. Can we do that? Amen. Being the family pastor here at Word of Life, I get the opportunity to see it all, to take it all in, from holding little babies in the nurseries to playing Foursquare with kids in elementary to helping teenagers navigate the minefield and the drama of romance and hormones. You guys remember those days, though? You've blocked them from your memory. Okay. It's true, though. I get to, I get to see it all, I feel like. And uh, one of the things as a family pastor that I get the honor to do is serve with an incredible team of people, some of the uh, most faithful servants of God who are committed week in and week out to seeing our faith passed on, the good news of Jesus and the love of God to the next generation. And so I just want to take a moment, and if you're on our PATH ministry team You know who you are. Thank you. You are my heroes. Um, I was actually serving with one of our PATH ministry teams in 678 one Sunday morning. 678 is our Sunday morning ministry for 6th through 8th graders. And I was able to teach there one Sunday during the season of Advent. So in the season of Advent, we're looking at the story leading up to Christmas. And so as I began my lesson that morning... Uh, A young man, a middle school boy who had uh, very little awareness of social boundaries, which is often common for middle school boys. Can I just let you in on a secret? Middle school boys are unpredictable. I always say middle school boys are like little kids in big bodies, right? It's just a bit awkward. You know what I mean? And so that's one of the things I love about middle school ministry is you never know what the day will bring, right? When you're dealing with middle schoolers. So it's not often this happened, but I was teaching. I was in the middle of teaching And I began to present the story for that morning, right? Which had to do with baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph. It's Advent. Talking about the coming birth of Jesus. And the student blurts out and says, Oh God, not again. Just in the middle of the lesson. He says, we hear this story every year. And it's the same story every year, as if we're supposed to this year have a different story for Christmas, right? Like, 
Today, kids, it's Christmas, so we're going to talk about Naaman, the general who had leprosy. No, it just doesn't work. Christmas is about the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ. And I remembered that morning and that comment from that student stuck with me because I think this is often how we all approach scriptures in our faith journey at times. We kind of stumble onto this attitude during seasons of life as, as if we've heard it all. It's the same story over and over. We know the answers. We've learned the facts. What's next, right? Maybe we're in a season where we're just feeling a bit uh, burn out on everything and that everything has become stale for us. And I think we're conditioned, if I can be honest, to be obsessed with facts, right? If you're like me, I grew up in school and our test taking had little bubbles under the questions, right? You had a question and then you were to answer the question with one answer, but you had four choices, A, B, C, or D, right? And I don't know about you, but if I were to have a fifth answer that we, I thought was maybe more creative uh, and think outside of the box and write that answer in the margin, I, I wouldn't receive credit for that, right? It's either A, B, C, or D. These are the facts. We live in a facts-obsessed world. In our modern era, I think we are obsessed with facts. Who, what, when, and where? Give me the facts. But here's the power of story. While story contains facts, it's true, And those facts over time, they don't change. They remain the same. Like in our Christmas story, for instance, that we're all so familiar with. There's facts. The who, what, when, and where. There's the same characters every year. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the three wise men, Herod, the angel Gabriel, the shepherds. Some of you count the camels as a character because, you know, you're here every Christmas Eve. Uh, the, The facts remain that they're in Bethlehem because there was a census, right? And while the facts stay the same... Throughout these stories, the power of story is not just knowing the facts, but learning how the facts work together and answering beyond the question of who, what, when, and where, but the question why. How do these facts work together? And our, our answer to that question and the question why may shift and change year after year after year. For instance, one year, as you encounter the Christmas story, I'm using that because we're all so familiar with this story. Your focus for that year as you read the Christmas story and hear it may be the faith of Mary, a young woman who is willing to say yes to God in her life, to be used by God in a way that would be challenging in her community. Maybe you're astonished by her faith and encouraged by her faith. And yet the next year, all of a sudden, you find yourself focusing more on the terror experienced by families at the time when Herod made a decree to slaughter the innocent among them, the children. That dark part of the Christmas story seems to capture your imagination and your focus. The facts of the story, they don't change, but our telling of it and our understanding of it can change and should change. We do this in our lives, don't we? I mean, our lives are not just a set of facts. You're more than, your life is more than just who, what, when, and where, right? Your life is telling stories. We're living a story. And the way that we tell our story changes as we grow, right? We may have the same stories that we had growing up, but as we grow older, as we grow not just older in age, but in maturity, we tell those stories differently with a different emphasis. For instance, 
Growing up, I was only allowed to have one pop. Oh my goodness, I called it pop. I'm from Georgia. We call it soda or Coke where I'm from, but I've been here long enough that I call it pop now, right? So we were only allowed to have one soda. I'll say it with a little Southern, one soda every day, right? That was it. Our, our, our refrigerator, that was back in the day. Did you know kids don't drink pop anymore? I have a youth group, they're like, I don't want pop. That stuff's terrible for you. But when I was growing up, pop was like the, the lost treasure that has been found. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And so I would have to calculate when, especially in the summer, when I was home all day, the fridge is full of cold pop, when I was going to have my one pop. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Why can't I have more than one pop? Jimmy gets as much pop as he wants. But my parents were strict. I wasn't allowed to have more than one pop. I wasn't allowed to watch Care Bears, Ninja Turtles, or the Smurfs. I know, right? Strict, I tell you. One pop. Except for at family reunions. Family reunions, nobody was keeping track. You see, I found a loophole in the system. At our house, it was one pop per day. But at family reunions, remember when those used to happen? We had them all the time growing up. Labor Day, Memorial Day. We'd go to the park or my grandpa's house. And there would be, everybody would bring coolers of pop. And I would just spend the day hanging out by the cooler. Just drinking as much pop as my heart desired until by the end, at the end of the day, I was sick to my stomach at home. Like, oh God, my parents are like, why, why don't you feel well? I was like, I don't know. Just drink pop all day. As a kid, I told that story like to my friends. I can't believe my parents only let me have one pop. They're so strict. But now I'm a parent, right? And the stories that I used to tell that my parents being strict, I now tell and say, wow, my parents were wise. <laughs> Right? Come on. So now my, I, with my daughter, I'm like, you can only have one apple juice, right? She's three years old. I want it. And we do this in our own lives. And we do this with our holy stories as well. Our scriptures. You know, scripture tells one grand story, a holy story of God and humanity. The story of salvation. And every year, we form the rhythms of our life around this story. Whether you're a person on the church calendar who keeps up with every fast day and feast day, or you're just a Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter kind of person, either way, we form the rhythms of our year around our holy story, the story of Jesus. And if we are willing to grow up in our faith, we will surely find that this Jesus story shifts and changes the more that it is told. At least our perspective of it shifts and change, changes. As we grow, so does our perspective of who Jesus is, who God is, and what are the implications for us. I love the way that C.S. Lewis unpacks this for us. He paints a picture of this very reality in his book, Prince Caspian. It's a part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's a scene in this story where Lucy, this little girl, is talking with Aslan, this lion who represents God. And the, the dialogue goes like this. Lucy approaches Aslan and she hasn't seen, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan replies and says, that's because you're older, little one. And then Lucy, puzzled, says, not because you are bigger. And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, I believe God is greater 
than our capacity to contain him. But as we grow, so does that capacity to perceive just how large the love of God is. So this morning I'd like to invite you to grow a little bit. Maybe as we grow together this morning, so will our vision, our view, our perspective of how great God is and how large his love is. One of the stories that I've preached more than any other story from the Bible is our lectionary reading for today, our gospel reading, which you heard just a moment ago, and the scripture that I'm supposed to be teaching from, but we're like halfway through now and we're just getting to it. But regardless... When I found out that this story was the story for the Sunday that I was scheduled to preach, the the story of the woman at the well, I thought, sweet, this will be easy. I could preach this in my sleep. I know this story like the palm of my own hand. It's been a busy month. Anybody had a busy month before? We just, you know, went to Uganda with World Vision, came home, moved last week, and then we're preaching this week in the midst of everything that has to happen in normal life. So I thought, great, I've got a story that I know backwards and forwards. I've, I've preached it, you know, countless times. And so I went to my sacred place to prep for this sermon. The thin place where I soak in the presence of Jesus. You know, that holy place. Some of you may find the same place to be your sacred space. And as I sat there at North Belt Starbucks. (laughs) Working on this sermon. uh, It's true, I like to write and think and prep lessons and sermons at Starbucks. It's weird, but for some reason I find it's life-giving to be around a bunch of people that I'm in no way obligated to engage with, right? And uh, at times I feel the anointing there, but I often wonder if it's just that fourth cup of coffee that I've had. And either way, it's a fun buzz. Uh, but I was there really at Starbucks, and I had this Bible, and I, was, I turned open to John chapter 4. And I began to read this story, which I've read countless times, which I've preached from more than I can remember, And everything was the same. Same facts. Who, what, when, where. Samaritan woman was still there. Jesus. The well. Everything was the same. The words were the same. The story was the same. Everything was the same except for me. I was the element this week that had hopefully been growing and shifting my perspective as I've been on the journey with Jesus. Becoming more aware of my own projections and assumptions in life, my own bias and baggage. I sat with this story again. And I imagine myself here this morning speaking to you all. Preaching about this woman that I've preached about so many times. I began to have questions. What if this story doesn't just teach us about moral failings and forgiveness? Or about unfulfillment and satisfaction? What if this story could teach us more about shame and healing? About vulnerability and courage? About rejection and belonging? Those are places that I don't like to go to often in life, personally. If it means anything to you, I'll just let you know I'm an Enneagram 7. Pain, vulnerability, shame. It's not like the place we like to go and waller in and hang out, you know. 
See, the facts are all the same. Jesus and his disciples were going from Judea up to Galilee. They had to pass through Samaria, as we heard this morning. The fact that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along remains the same. They were like Oakland Raiders and Kansas City Chiefs. Oil and water, don't mix, right? No thanks. Don't really want anything to do with each other. And to add to that, and the tension there between Samaritans and Jews... Men were not, in that day and age, seen in public conversation with women. This was a bit of a taboo um, act to participate in, much less a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. You see, the Jews didn't have any respect for Samaritans. They saw them as defiled, compromised. They were a group of people that were Jewish at one point, but then married off into a variety of Gentile nations and even adopted the worship of some of their gods and some of their areas of the country. They disagreed on where to worship God. The Samaritans wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And the Jews just thought these were a defiled, unclean, and compromised people. The tension is building, but all these facts remain. And Jesus is sitting there, as he had every time I had read the story before. Thirsty and weary from his journey, the disciples had gone into town to buy some food. Jesus is alone at the well Jacob's well. And enters now a woman, a Samaritan woman. And Jesus asks her as she approaches the well, he says this to her, would you give me a drink? No, actually, he doesn't say it that nicely. He just says, give me a drink. A bit abrupt. The woman responds to him and says, What are you, a Jewish man, doing asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Literally, he was asking to drink after her. It would be like drinking after one during someone during the coronavirus. (laughs) You know, could I borrow your bottle of water, please? I'm kind of thirsty, you know. She's like, what are you doing? A Jew drinking after a Samaritan? And he said, if you only knew the gift of God who is asking you for a drink, you would be asking him for a drink and he would give you living water. And now she she says, what in the world are you talking about? You're the one who asked me for a drink. You don't have a bucket or rope. The well is deep. Where are you going to get this water from? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who founded this well, drank from this well himself all those years ago and left this for us? Are you greater than he? And then Jesus begins to unpack what he's really going to get at with this woman in this story. He says, everyone who drinks of this water at this well will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. And the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to Jesus, sir... Give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay, now Jesus, in the next few verses, which we didn't hear this morning and that I'll read in just a moment, is about to get to the thing behind the thing. How many of you know that is what Jesus is interested in? He wants to get to the thing behind the thing, the thing under the thing. Let me say that we could learn from Jesus. I could learn from Jesus. Spouses, you can learn from Jesus here. It's the thing 
under the thing. It's the thing behind the thing that we need to be concerned with. In other words, it's not about the fact that you got her chocolate and flowers for her birthday. It's that she knows you didn't think about getting her anything for her birthday until you were on your way home from work that day. And that's the only thing you could think of that would be at the grocery store. It's the thing behind the thing. You're like, why is she not happy about this? And I'm not even standing in judgment of you. I learn from experience. It's not the thing. It's the thing behind the thing, right? It's not about canceling poker night so that you can have date night. It's the fact that you would rather be at poker night than at date night, right? That's the thing behind the thing that needs to be addressed. It's not about... How much time you're spending at home with your family. It's about how present you are to your family when you are at home. It's the thing behind the thing. But Jesus is not just concerned with behavior modification. He wants to get at the heart of the matter. The root of the matter. And he's going to do just that with this woman. You know about getting to the root of things? about to be in growing season. How many of your grass is getting green? Soon you'll have these little beautiful yellow flowers that come up. You know what I'm talking about? And some of you are like me, you're impatient. You need a quick fix. You look out and you see a whole field of flowers and you think, oh Lord, the weeds are taking over. So you take your mower and you mow them down. Two days later, there's more. And then uh, you are doomed if you let those pretty yellow flowers turn into white little ghost seeds. You know what I'm talking about. They haunt you and you think, well, I'll just fix this quick. You mow them down. It makes it worse, folks. The seeds get stuck to the inside of your mower and then you just spread them around your beautiful little yard. Your quick fixes are just making the problem worse. You need to get to the root of the thing. You need to address the root of the problem. That's what Jesus wants to do here. With this woman at the well. John 4 verse 16. Jesus says to her. Go. Call your husband. And come back. The woman answered him. I have no husband. Jesus said to her. You are right in saying. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What is at the heart of the matter here? What thirst is Jesus dealing with in this woman's life? I used to jump to answer that question and I would shoot straight at her faults and her failures, which Jesus wants to forgive and renew, which may be true enough. Our faults and failures, Jesus wants to forgive and make us new. And then I used to jump immediately to her dissatisfaction and her unsatisfied desire to be fulfilled, which Jesus wants to bring true and lasting fulfillment to, which is true. But can I be honest with you this morning? Sat there in that sacred holy Starbucks with my sacred holy cup of coffee in this story. And I realized that for years... I've often had the thought, five marriages, five marriages. There's one common denominator in five marriages, and we all know who it is. And from my place of privilege and pride, I look down on this woman. It's from this perspective that I look at her and her story. I kind of had this posture as I read the story like, 
for shame. Maybe I'm projecting my own faults and failures, my own dissatisfaction into her story, but, but hold on. How did I make all those assumptions from three short verses? I filled in the lines in all kinds of ways that were probably my own bias and baggage, my own assumptions projected into her story. Three short verses, and there's a lot of room to fill in the blank. So we can have some fun this morning. We can learn to grow and explore this story fresh and anew. This woman, we don't know why she's had five marriages. The, the questions begin to swirl in my mind. What if she had been a victim in the story? Not the one to blame. What if she was victimized by a series of men who divorced her for whatever reason you could imagine? And then I began to imagine maybe she's a woman who struggled with infertility. She was barren. And when she was fully known by her first husband who wanted children, he rejected her. The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And so that each marriage in her place of woundedness and greatest pain, these broken marriages just added injury to insult, salt to an open wound. What if she had been treated like a soccer ball kicked from one man to another in a system which didn't allow women the power of voice or the right to own land or carry on business in the marketplace? In fact, Jesus addresses this unjust system of divorce, taking advantage of women and creating victims and widows in Matthew 5, his most famous sermon on the mount. But still, I sit with myself in the story and I make this woman out to be fragile, weak, and wounded. But after all she's endured, five marriages, and all the baggage that comes along with that, maybe some of you know this story all too well yourself, after all that she has endured, she carries on. And all of a sudden, this woman to me becomes strong. Resilient, brave, and courageous. She carries on. In fact, after the conversation on this topic of her past with Jesus, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. This woman is wise. She sees that Jesus is a prophet, and all of a sudden we have one of the longest theological debates and discussions recorded in Scripture with a single person. This woman and Jesus. In fact, this woman gets it. Jesus reveals to her for the first time in the Gospel of John, just openly and honestly, he reveals to this woman, I am the Messiah. I am he. This woman gets who Jesus is and she knows what he's about. She's getting it. She's brilliant. Just a chapter before, we have one of the most prestigious teachers in all of Israel, Nicodemus, who doesn't get it. And yet this woman who we've all looked down upon in reading the story, is the one who gets it. All of a sudden, I'm becoming impressed with this woman at the well. Inspired even by her bravery, her courageous act of carrying on in life. But maybe we would prefer to just see her as a person dealing with sin. Maybe that's easier for us than journeying to the place of pain. Because then we have to journey to our own place of pain, right? Anyone who's been through five marriages is going to be a person who carries pain. 
But let me say this, that strength, strength is not the absence of pain. Strength is the courage to face our pain honestly. That's true strength. We live in a world where we want to, we want to stay busy enough and entertained enough that we don't have to deal with our pain, that we can ignore our pain, that we can numb our pain. But in the season of Lent, this is a season where we're called to face pain and suffering honestly. And it takes real courage, real strength to do so. Brene Brown says these words, an increasing number of people today would rather never know love than to know hurt or grief. I'm going to say that again. It's good. An increasing number of people today would rather never know love than to know hurt or grief. The good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our pain. Amen? We don't have a God who exempts himself from pain. We have a God of love, a God who is love and therefore is willing to go into the very depths of pain because of love. Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our pain. In fact, it's in the dry and barren places within our life, those places of darkness and pain that he wants to cause a spring of living water, of fresh water to gush up from that place to bring hope and healing and new life to the dry and barren and dead in our lives. But if we want to receive this living water of Jesus, this spring which brings hope and healing and new life, we are going to have to learn to live in a posture of openness. We are going to have to learn to tear down the fences that we've built up to keep people out and to keep God out of the dark and painful places of our life. We are going to have to learn to remove the masks which have become such a place of identity for us, a false identity to keep people at a distance, to keep God at a distance so that we don't have to be fully known. One of the greatest fears of humanity, this is ripping from Brene Brown again, I love this. One of the greatest fears of humanity is to be fully known and rejected. To be fully known and rejected. That's what this woman had experienced. Am I right? She had been fully known in marriage five times and rejected five times. But yet she had the courage to keep coming back to that place of pain. You know the well, it represents a place of pain for her. This is a well that was Jacob's well. It had been there for generations and all throughout her scriptures, our scriptures, the tradition was that the well was a place that bridegrooms would go to find a bride. Abraham's servant finds Rebekah for Isaac. Jacob, the well's namesake, finds his wife Rachel. Moses finds his wife Zipporah sitting at the brink of the well. But she keeps coming back, willing to face this place of pain, seeking healing, Seeking hope, seeking somehow to be mended. And this day when she comes to that place of pain, 
she finds a man sitting there once again. And at first she's guarded, right? She uses race, politics, religion. She's keeping him at a distance, kind of like we do. Finding out who he is and where he stands, will, will he treat her like all other men have treated her? And yet, instead of finding someone who rejects her, he finds a man, Jesus, the very icon of God, our creator, our father in heaven, who knows everything she ever did. He knows her in the fullness. She knows her strength that no one else sees, but he also sees the weakness and the pain which no one else can know. And he doesn't turn away from her, but he sees her as she is, for who she is. And he welcomes her in. He embraces her. He offers her the gift of heaven, new life, hope, healing, like fresh water gushing forward in a place of dryness and death. So if the greatest fear of humanity is to be fully known and rejected, the greatest gift of love is to fully know someone and accept them. Amen? Amen. The band, you all can come back up as we come in for a close this morning. I'd like you to put a picture up of the San Damiano cross. This is the posture of Jesus towards us and the world. This is always the posture of Jesus. I think it's good for us to have a crucifix where we see the crucified Christ. Not just a cross. Crosses are good too. You know, Jesus didn't stay on the cross, right? He was buried and rose again in resurrection life. But I think it's good for us, especially during Lent, to see Jesus on the cross. Because he's in this posture. Just keep this picture with you this week. Jesus on the cross. He's not guarded, he's not closed, clenched fit, open hands, open arms, an open heart. This morning, the posture of Jesus to you, the posture of God, I don't know how you've seen God in the past, but this morning, he stands before you with arms wide open, completely vulnerable. In fact, in reality, when he hung on that cross, he was naked, completely vulnerable, nothing to hide. And as Jesus opens his life, he gives his life, his body broken for you, his blood shed. The the table reminds us of this week in and week out. He invites us to respond in kind, to reciprocate that openness and vulnerability, to have the courage like this woman did to come before Jesus and be fully known my strengths and my weaknesses, my success and my failure, my dreams and my disappointments. To come even back to the place of pain, that place which we have not visited in such a long time but still affects everything that we do and every part of our life and who we are, to come back to that place at this table this morning and let Jesus receive that pain, know that pain, and in return give you living water 
to heal, to mend, to bring new life into old places. Would you stand on your feet this morning? Our world needs a church right now that is full of hope, that brings healing. The end of the Samaritan woman's story is that she leaves the place of encounter with Jesus. She goes back to her town and begins to spread the good news of Jesus. Could this be the Messiah? You've got to come meet a man who knew everything I ever did. But for us to, like the Samaritan woman, go out from this place into the world with hope and healing and good news of a God of love revealed in Jesus, we ourselves need to come to this place, have the courage to live vulnerable lives with Jesus, open up our life to him and let him do his work in us first. So would you just close your eyes this morning and in a posture of openness, would you hold your hands out in front of you up to heaven, a posture of receiving, a posture of openness, a posture of surrender. Lord, we make ourselves present to you this morning. We open our lives to you. We create a space where we can face our fears, our pain, our faults, our failures, the dry and lonely places within us, those barren places. Now we receive the gift of new life, the gift of living water. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. Do your work in our life. Heal us, put the broken pieces back together. Strengthen us and sustain us. Make us a people of hope and healing in a broken and dark world, make us the light of the world, Jesus, only through your work that we might go from this place bringing the same hope and healing that we find here this morning.